So as Mel mentioned, uh, that was Mary's song, and a thousand years before that, we had Hannah's song, and uh, Hannah's song really sets up what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, the story of King David. It is uh, Hannah's son who anoints King David, and uh, we'll, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18 this morning, if you want to turn in your Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 18. So last week we began a series called Can't Live Without Them. And in this series we're looking at the different kinds of relationships that we find in Scripture. And we have various relationships that really inform us on the relationships that help us be the people God has called us to be. And this is based on a, a book by Leonard Sweet called 11 Indispensable Relationships You Can't Be Without. And what, what Leonard does is he takes different relationships found in Scripture and, and highlights how important these relationships are. And the first two relationships that we find in this series center on the life of King David. Uh, so last week we looked at uh, the low point in David's life, his sin with Bathsheba and and how the prophet Nathan was a gift of God uh, who exposed, who, who helped David see clearly the monster he had become. And every one of us needs a Nathan. Uh, we just do. But today's sermon text is found much earlier in the life of David. It takes place just after what has to be in the top two, top three most famous stories in Scripture. Uh, David and Goliath, we hear it referenced in all different kinds of avenues. We hear it in sports, uh, how uh, David slew Goliath. I must say I wasn't as excited to hear that one yesterday as uh, some people were. Uh, but it's just in the air. After that, that story, after that event of David killing the giant, uh, David becomes a hero. He becomes a celebrity, if you will. But by the time we get to our sermon text this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 4, David is on the cusp of entering into a very dark period in his life, a time of great disorientation. It really is his first big trial. And uh, in this disorientation, God sends David someone. He sends David someone whom David really can't live without. He sends David a friend. He sends David, Jonathan. Let's hear the word of God from 1 Samuel chapter 18, the first four verses. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his very own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow, and his belt. May God bless the reading of his word. 
I love the different translations of 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, and describing this relationship between Jonathan and David. One translation says that Jonathan committed himself to David. Another translation says that Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. The NIV says Jonathan had become one in spirit with David. But my favorite translation is the one that was read from the English Standard Version. Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. I don't know a lot about knitting, but we do have some experts among us. Uh, There's a very special group of women here. They call themselves Chicks with Sticks. I didn't come up with that name. No man, to my knowledge, came up with that name. But it's a wonderful group. In fact, this group of women knitted together some hats and gave them to the fourth graders at McBee Elementary, a a gift that was so well received by those children. I love that image of being knit together and that relationship between Jonathan and David. The bringing together of two different fabrics of people brought together into one friendship. These two young men should have been rivals with each other. Jonathan was the son of King Saul. He was heir to the throne. But even Jonathan recognized that that the throne was being taken away from his family. And the reason why the throne was being taken away is because of this tragic figure, King Saul. We'll read about him in the upcoming weeks in our Bible classes. The first king of Israel, by his own hands, by his own thoughtlessness, by his own disobedience and sin, God removed his spirit from the king. And in the kingship of Israel, the Spirit of God plays a very important role in the anointing, in in the affirmation, in the empowering of the king. But after a series of blunders, to put it nicely, God removed his spirit from Saul and placed his spirit on this shepherd boy, David. A new line would take over the throne. And Jonathan somehow recognizes this, but instead of fighting with this new rival... Jonathan becomes for David something that is so rare. It was rare then, it is rare now. Jonathan became a true friend to David. And this friendship, this knitting together of the two souls, came at a very important time in the life of David. As I just mentioned in 1 Samuel 18-20, through those three chapters. That's a very dark period in the life of David. He had just won a great victory. The people were celebrating The women came up with a song. Saul has struck down his thousands. David his ten thousands. David is a rock star, a celebrity among the people. And Saul wouldn't have any of it. He goes mad. In these three chapters, Saul tries to kill David multiple times and in multiple ways. First, by his own hand. He hurls a spear at David. Twice, shouting, I will pin David to the wall. Then Saul tries to kill David through his enemies, the Philistines. Then through his messengers. Saul has put a target on David out of an insane jealousy. Or to be scripturally accurate, a harmful spirit that God had sent upon him. 
David was not safe. David was being driven away. David's world was unraveling as the king of Israel became obsessed with killing David. But what was it that brought a measure of stability in this world of chaos for David? A friend. A true friend. A Jonathan. The great Roman philosopher and statesman Cicero said this one time about friends. He said, If when I die I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of true friends I have, I would be the wealthiest person on the planet, which speaks to the rarity of a true friend. Well, what is a true friend? I hope you have one. We certainly know true friends from literature, from film. Uh, Who comes to your mind whenever I mentioned best friends? Holmes and Watson, Buzz Lightyear and Woody. That's an affirmation right there. Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Anne Shirley and Diana Barry. I had to look that one up. My personal favorite, Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins, I think is the best example of friendship that we have in, in film and in literature. The list could go on and on. The theme of friendship is central to our stories. People whose souls are knit together. Friends who are there for one another. Friends who walk through the fire with others. Friends who sacrifice for the other. And I wonder if the reason why we cling so closely to these stories about true friendship is because there's a hunger inside of all of us. If the sociologists are correct, we are living in an era, an age where friendship is in short supply. So in Sweet's book, he cites clinical psychologists who describe different levels of relationship. One in particular uses the image of an elevator. An elevator that goes through different floors of the human heart. So the top floor is called the facade level. Surfacy relationships with people with very loose connection. These are the people where we're on a bus with them and we talk to them about the weather. We talk to them about sports teams, but nothing below that surface. The next level is what we would call the acquaintance level. And the elevator is going down deeper into the heart. The acquaintance level, we take a few more risks. We share some opinions, maybe religious opinions, maybe political opinions. But then there's this third floor down. It is the floor of the friendship level. This is where we become more vulnerable. This is where we share feelings. Maybe not the deepest parts of our hearts, but we are seeking empathy. We are seeking trust. Maybe we go on a mission together with another person. But then there is this fourth floor. The level of intimacy. This requires the highest level of trust. This is where we reveal our wounds, our shame, our fears, our dreams. To quote Sweet, he says, this is where we come clean with our dark side. 
We allow someone to see who we truly are. And a true friend accepts us, warts and all. That fourth level is risky. That's why it's in such short, short supply. Many of our relationships in our society only go to the first two levels, the facade and the acquaintance level. In fact, there are many social scientists who claim that we are experiencing right now in our country a crisis of friendship. The number of confidants, the number of close friends, especially among men, have shrunken dramatically through the generations, even a generation or two ago. We are more isolated now. We are more lonely. We are more anxious in this country. And this is pre-pandemic. I think the pandemic has only made things worse or exposed something that was already there. We keep others at arm's length. Don't let anybody in. And we're not better for it. We are not better for it. God has created us for companionship. God has wired us for friendship. Even the most introverted among us know this to be true. That when the storms come, when we are forced to walk through the fire, we need a friend. We need a Jonathan. Jonathan and David had something very special. These two souls that were knit together, these two Souls that had an unbreakable bond. These two souls that really were a band of brothers. But it's a relationship that was forged in fire. So Eugene Peterson in his very, very good book, Leap Over the Wall, he makes an observation about the very structure of 1 Samuel 18 through 20. These three chapters about King Saul pursuing David, trying to kill him through various means, putting all the resources of Israel to taking David out. A very, very difficult time in David's life. But when you look at the bookends of 1 Samuel 18 through 20, the very beginning of 18, our sermon passage, the very end of chapter 20, what you find is Jonathan. To borrow a phrase from Peterson, it's the friendship of Jonathan and David that brackets the evil of King Saul. It's the friendship that brackets the evil, that keeps the evil contained. It's Jonathan who provides cover and escape for his friend. It's Jonathan who absorbs the insults from his father whenever his father catches wind that Jonathan had sided with David. It's Jonathan who has to evade the spear from his own father, just like David did. And when it's clear that David was no longer safe to stay in the area, it's Jonathan who shares the sympathizing tear with his friend David. It's what true friends do. In times of great trial, it is a friend who is there, a true friend. The one down there on the fourth floor down. The one who loves and supports, absorbs, protects, and even mourns with his friend. And the question that we ask with each one of these, do you have a Jonathan? Do you have a true friend? 
If we are to be the people that God has called us to be, we can't live without them. I don't know much about knitting. But I do know that the stitching is coming apart in our society when it comes to friendship. But in thinking about Jonathan and David and thinking about the treasure of their friendship, I see a great opportunity for the church. I see a great opportunity for us to be a witness to a world who is really starving for relationship, starving for friendship. Paul describes the church in his letter to the Colossians as a people who are knit together in love People who share the bond of Christ. People who experience the unity of the Spirit. We are a community. We are a people of different fabrics who have been knit together in love through Jesus Christ our Lord. To be a part of the church is to be in connection with and in relationship with others. And this morning I want to challenge you and I want to challenge me to think about this idea of knitting and to think about this idea of reinforcing the stitching. How do we reinforce this stitching that we have from God? How do we, as Paul says in Ephesians, protect the unity of the Spirit, reinforcing those bonds that we share with one another? Well, first, it takes some self-reflection. So we'll look at this slide one more time, this elevator slide and Only you can answer this. But when you think about your relationships here in this room and with the people in this church, where are your levels of relationships? What floor are you on? Are your relationships shallow? Do you find yourself on the facade and the acquaintance level? Do you have any friends? Do you have any people who know you? Who know your fears and your struggles and your dreams? Do you have someone you can call on? Someone who will be there for you whenever you go through the fire? Do you have anyone on that fourth level, that level of intimacy... This is where David and Jonathan reside. And men, I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm talking about a brother in arms. Those are rare. But if you find a Jonathan, you are truly blessed in this life and in the life to come. So how are we reinforcing the stitching? Well, I want to challenge all of us to think about our relationships and to think about taking our relationships to the next level, to go down another floor, to do as 1 Peter says in chapter 4, to love each other deeply. Well, how do we do this? Well, here are a few suggestions. Number one, it takes time. We have to invest the time. To be a friend is to be present with others. To be here when the doors are opened, not when it's just about what can I get out of it? What can you get out of it? Well, there's another person here. 
There's another opportunity to invest in the bonds that we share, to encourage someone else. We have the opportunity to make the time and the space inside and outside of our assemblies, going to lunch, going to ball games, breaking bread in one another's homes. You can't build those relationships without investing time. But once you've invested the time, are you open up, are you willing to open up and be vulnerable? Paul tells us time and time again that we are to carry each other's burdens. We are to bear the burdens of one another. And how can we do this if we don't share our struggles? We had a time of confession this morning. We confess to God our sins. James chapter 5 tells us that we are to confess our sins to one another. Are you willing to bear your soul to another person? Are you willing to share your struggles? When we interact with one another and someone asks, how, you're, how are you doing? Is your answer always fine? Well, to someone on the facade level or the acquaintance level, the answer is always fine, but not to a friend. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. My marriage is falling apart. I'm doing fine. I've got all these stresses at work. I'm fine. I fell into temptation. I'm fine. I couldn't be better. A friend won't let you get away with that. A true friend can see it in your face. Whatever it is, if we keep our struggles underneath the surface, we're going to stay on that facade and that acquaintance level. But a final thing as we close, and thinking about friendship and thinking about being knit together, we have to think smaller. As you work your way down on the, the levels of relationship in the elevator analogy, the number of people in that circle get very, very small. And in a church this size, it's easier. It's easier to stay on that acquaintance level. But I would encourage you to think smaller. We have small groups in this assembly, in this room. Uh, many of you are correctly sitting in your assigned seat. And there's a blessing in that. We actually form small groups, if you haven't noticed, in the assembly. We check in on each other. I know when uh, someone's not in my little small circle there in the assembly. What an opportunity to reach out and check on someone. But it's in our Bible classes. It's in our home groups, which we're going to have later on today, where friendships are forged. It's on a third Sunday evening. Maybe not during the assembly, but in those small conversations outside of the assembly, around tables. It's those opportunities when we, ha we can go into someone's house when there's a get-together. It's those side conversations where friendships are born and forged, sometimes, perhaps often, in fire. It's in those smaller circles where we walk alongside one another. It's in those small circles where we become church as family. Think small. God knew what He was doing when He planned the church before the creation of the world. 
God knew that we would need community in a world that is increasingly isolated. God knew that we needed each other. He knew that we needed to be part of this group that has been knit together through Jesus Christ and through the power of His Spirit. And here's the final question. What is God calling you to do this week to reinforce the stitching? Is it a call or a text? Is it an invitation into your home? Is it committing to be a part of these smaller circles, these smaller groups that we have here at Brentwood Oaks where we move from acquaintance to friendship and maybe if if God blesses us so with someone with whom we can share and bear our souls with one another as we walk through life, we cannot do this by ourselves. None of us can. We need each other. We have this blessing. We have this blessed tie that binds our hearts together in Christian love. And we're going to sing this. This is really maybe an odd invitation song, but it's an invitation to reflect upon the, the sweet fellowship of the Spirit that is ours in Christ. How can we take it to the next level? Let's think on such things as we stand and as we sing.